0: On this episode of Movies Ruined My Life, we take a closer look at the 1994 cult classic, The Crow. Hey everyone, it's Brandon. I'm here by myself this week. I'm kind of lonely and I was thinking, you know what, let's go back and look at a flick that I absolutely loved as a kid and as a teenager. I've had a hard time this week trying to decide how to start this episode, and I felt as though the best way to start would be to go back to the creation of the Crow comic. It was 1978 when a car driven by a drunk driver jumped a curb and claimed the life of James O'Barr's fiancé Beverly. Obar, in an attempt to escape the pain of his loss, would soon after enlist in the Marines, and while stationed in Berlin, Germany, illustrating combat manuals in the early 1980s, he would begin work on what was to become the Crow. Upon his return home to Detroit, Obar would continue his work on the Crow at night while working in an auto body shop by day in hopes of achieving some level of solace. Obar was later quoted stating, writing the Crow didn't help at all. I thought it would be cathartic, but as I drew each page, it made me more self-destructive, if anything. In addition to his own loss, Obar has stated that he drew inspiration for The Crow from an article that he had read in a Detroit newspaper about a couple who had been killed over a $20 engagement ring and how very senseless of a crime it was. It wouldn't be until November of 1988 when The Crow would first appear on the back cover of Dead World number no. 10, a property recently acquired by the newly founded Caliber Press as a precursor to Caliber Press number no. 1, which the story Inertia first appeared in in January of 1999. Now, from February to May of 1989, four issues of The Crow would come out under the Caliber Press banner, as well as a flashback story titled Atmosphere, appearing in December of 1989's A Caliber Christmas. And for people like me, who were too young to read the book in the initial release, or hell, even the re-release of the books under the Tundra label, you may recognize that story as appearing between books two and three in the kitchen sink graphic novel release. As the 1990s began and independent comics had a stronger hold on popular culture than perhaps ever before, The Crow had started to gain quite a cult following. With high-profile comics artists and writers leaving companies like Marvel and DC and forming their own companies such as Image Comics, it seemed like for the first time the spotlight was on the little guy. So, in September of 1990, in Caliber Presents number 15, a preview of the fifth part of the Crow story titled Death made its first appearance. Now, it's been said in many an interviews with James O'Barr that Hollywood came knocking fairly early on into Caliber Press's The Crow releases, seeking to acquire the rights to his book. You've most likely heard the story of one group of executives suggesting that the film be made into a musical starring Michael Jackson, which I'm sure Obar was just overjoyed with. Obar would eventually decide on relinquishing the rights to producer Jeff Most and writer John Shirley, who, while offering a considerably less lucrative deal than others that Obar had heard from, he believed that their enthusiasm for the project would be his best opportunity to see a film realized that resembled his original vision. Producer Edward R. Pressman would join the project, and a script, along with several revisions, would be penned over the next few years. And this is right around the time that Tundra Publishing would pick up the Crow titles from Calibur and republish the first four books in anticipation for the final chapter of Eric's quest for revenge. Now, in the Tundra releases, Pain and Fear books 1 and 2 are a single book, as is 3 and 4, Irony and Despair, with the final book, Death, being released in 1992. Now, as far as the film goes, released on May thirteenth, 1994, The crow opened at number one at the U.S. box office and would go on to rake in approximately $94 million worldwide during its theatrical run. It marked the directorial debut of Alex Proyas and, of course, was the final film for rising star Brandon Lee, who had passed away in a tragic on-set accident. Of course, Alex Price was already a highly sought after music video and commercial director who had been looking for the right project to cross over into feature film. While casting the role of Eric Draven, early considerations included the idea of casting a musician. Uh, a clear standout appears to have been Charlie Sexton, who's probably best known for this tune Beat So Lonely which spent 20 weeks on the Billboard charts, peaking at number 17 in March of 1986. He's also gone on to play on several tours and on, I think, several records with Bob Dylan, if I'm not mistaken. I've also heard stories over the years of actors like River Phoenix and Christian Slater, among the names considered to portray the role of Eric, but producer Edward R. Pressman would explain in Jeff Connor's book, The Crow, the movie. Catchy title. They felt they needed a leading man who possessed both the acting skill set and the athletic ability that the script called for, and as such, Brandon Lee became their clear and decisive choice. Now, I've read that it was producer Jeff Most who first suggested making Eric a musician in the film. Not a rock star that everyone would recognize, but an average Joe. This seems to be a constant throughout all revisions to the script, and there were a lot. Writer John Shirley apparently penned an earlier version of the script where Sarah also had an older brother. I've also seen talk on early versions of the script featuring more villains and presumably an even higher body count. It's said that at some point during pre-production, James O'Barr would draft an outline to help bring the project closer to his vision. And David J. Sho was later brought onto to the project to work on rewrites as well. Now, I've read that it was only in later versions of the script where the film's time frame was first altered to take place on Devil's Night and Halloween. But I seem to also recall from the Collector's Edition DVD commentary, John Shirley and Jeff Most discussing its appearance in earlier drafts. In either case, that concept obviously remained a fairly prominent mechanism in the film. And if you're wondering, we'll get into Skull Cowboy a little later. There's another interesting change to early drafts of the script pushed for by Brandon Lee himself. Basically, before the character of Micah was committed to the page, there was another big baddie aiming to steal Eric's powers. One that was apparently considerably more racially insensitive. And long story short, at Lee's behest, the character was annexed from the script. Okay, so filming started on The Crow at EUE Screen Gem Studios in Wilmington, North Carolina in February of 1993, and from everything I've read on the film over the years, there's been two constants among everyone who comments on the shoot. Number one, it was a grueling shoot, working long nights with not a great deal of time off, and this makes sense because at the time, North Carolina was a right-to-work state, so things like longer work schedules, and lower compensation for crew members. They would be unacceptable on unionized Hollywood sets, but would have been possible on the set of The Crow. And number two, Brandon Lee was a big contributor to keeping morale high. I've read several accounts of Lee's commitment to the role, his willingness to work with no shirt or shoes in the middle of February while being blasted with water, and his positive attitude set the bar So high for his colleagues. Okay, let's do a fun fact. You guys like fun facts? Why did I ask that? You can't respond. (laughs) Okay, did you know that there is not a single crow in the movie, the crow? But there is five ravens and one animatronic bird thing used in the scene that Biling's character Micah gets her eyes ripped out of her head and then she falls to her death. Anyway... One of the five ravens, named Magic, is actually in all four of the crow movies. But these birds had to have some mad skills for this flick. So we were just talking about the film being mostly night shoots, right? Well, ravens don't fly at night. They sleep, like peoples do. They also don't fly when it rains, and so their trainer... Larry Madrid had to do a ton of film-specific work to get these birds accustomed to being in the environments and situations that they would experience during filming. A fucking bird over there. <laughs> okay, so let's talk a little bit about the cast. Obviously, this is very much Brandon Lee's film. It's very much on his shoulders, but there are many a strong performance throughout this film. I very much like the role of Sarah portrayed by Rochelle Davis. I'm not a fan of kids in movies. I can count on one hand the number of times that I've loved a child character in a film predominantly made up of adults, and also Ernie Hudson as Albrecht, being this amalgamation of essentially two police officers from the books. He's so warm, so pure of heart that even though a lot of the aspects of the character play very much like a classic noir-era detective. He's so endearing, so colorful, and it makes the role absolutely brilliant. Now, with the trifecta of big baddies being Michael Wincotta's top dollar Byling Ling as Micah, and obviously the one and only Tony Todd as Grange, three characters that are actually never addressed by name in the film. And of the three, only Top Dollar appears in the comic. Um, Grange, in particular, I've seen an interview with Tony Todd where he talks about that ring that he has on and how that very much gave him an insight into the character of Grange. Additionally, I love the stories about Michael Wincott refusing to do the role without... The hair extensions, the hair piece that he has on in the film. That's hilarious. Um, Okay, so obviously David Patrick Kelly is another standout in the film. T-Bird is just this larger-than-life villain. I absolutely adore his 1973 Ford Thunderbird in this bright red. It's so cool. I love that he went out and acquired an antique copy of Paradise Lost to use as a prop in the film. But that being said... All four of the characters that Eric is after initially in T-Bird, Tin, Fun Boy, and Skank are these amplified larger-than-life villains that just make this film really, really fun. I also just wanted to mention one quick thing on Sophia Chinez. I believe that's how it's pronounced, or Sophia Chinez, either way, who plays Shelley in the film and all the flashback sequences and whatnot. First of all, she's from Windsor, Ontario. So, a little shout-out to Windsor, Ontario. Additionally... When I was looking her up, because I knew i had seen her somewhere other than in this film, I recognized nothing in her filmography as something that would stick out in my mind until I accidentally clicked on a YouTube video and came across this song. It's called The Message, and it's actually her first single that peaked at number 75, on the Billboard Hot 100 charts back in the early 90s. She had two singles that followed this, and after those three songs, she transitioned into film. So it seems as though Sophia was a bit of a Canadian pop star. I wouldn't recommend looking that song up, by the way. It's not that good, and trying to figure out the melody is like trying to solve a Rubik's Cube with your teeth. Sorry, Sophia. Ah, this is already boring the shit out of me. Now... Proyas had a strong desire to shoot The Crow in black and white, using color only in the film's flashback sequences, but needless to say, studio executives were not having any of that. Instead, what was achieved between the efforts of Proyas, cinematographer Darius Walski, art director Simon Merton, production designer Alex McDowell, and the entire cast and crew, was a dark, gritty, gothic dream world, lit and photographed wonderfully in a desaturated, monochromatic palette, paired with super-saturated flashback sequences with intense, fiery reds. It's a little reminiscent of the sepia Kansas at the beginning of The Wizard of Oz that turns to Technicolor when Dorothy arrives in Oz. I also love how visual and thematic elements of film noir can be found throughout this film, and it's blended so beautifully into the post-punk dystopia created by the filmmakers. I've heard the analogy used that they were trying to make a $30 million movie for $15 million. And in a lot of ways, that's very true. If you have a chance, listen to the American Cinematographer podcast episode with Darius Walski talking about his work on The Crow, which I will try to link to in the show notes. He talks about how they went about achieving that desaturated look in the early 90s on a budget using a sepia filter and then eliminating the browns from the print, but how because of all the blue they were using to remove the brown, they had to avoid any traces of blue on the set. It's a good interview with some great stories and insights on the stuff that we're geeking out on here. Obviously, this is a very dark film. The lighting choices are made with great intent by the filmmakers, partly due to the film's budgetary constraints, but more often for the purposes of controlling the narrative flow of the piece and cultivating an emotional response from you and me in the audience. With a lot of the lighting, camera placement, and angle choices harkening back to German expressionism and also reminding me a lot of the big names in American filmmaking that emerged in the 1970s, Oh, and obviously borrowing quite a bit from Ridley Scott films like Blade Runner and Alien. I see so very clearly now why the aesthetic of this film left such an impression on people like myself in the early 90s. Now, what is this film? Is it an action-adventure film? A comic book movie? Is it sci-fi? Horror? Romance? Neo-noir? Well, yes, When people complain about comic book movies not endeavoring to transcend into higher art, I always find myself pointing to films like The Crow, like Tim Burton's Batman, perhaps The Dark Knight. You could even put 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in that light to a certain extent. And while perhaps only a few, or maybe none of these films, are successful in achieving that transcendence that we're talking about, they make me absolutely certain that it's possible. I think films like these very much also paved the way for comic book films like Road to Perdition and A History of Violence to come to fruition, and films like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Like the Crow certainly made it a lot easier for Frank Miller's Sin City, and for that matter, even Todd McFarlane's Spawn to see their day on the silver screen. One last thought on these sort of films before we move along. Hollywood has been sourcing material from books ad nauseum, from the infancy of the moving picture right through to present day. So for those who believe that the comic book movie is a fad or a craze, I'd like you to consider that with comic books, filmmakers are getting all the same benefits of sourcing material from a novel, with the added bonus of free storyboards to use in their pitch meetings. Seems like a pretty sweet deal to me. Okay, so along the same lines of that thought, let's talk a little bit about some of the differences as well as some of the similarities between James O'Barr's comic and Alex Price's film. Alright, so some of the most glaring differences include the fact that Eric and Shelley do not have last names in the comic. Even when you see their gravestones, there's no names on them. It's all blurred out. And I'm not sure who added the last names or the purpose for them. I'm assuming Eric Draven is a nod to... The Edgar Allan Poe influence in the script, but I'm not certain. I couldn't find anything on it, so I didn't want to speak on it. Additionally, they aren't getting married on Halloween. They actually just bought a house, and they aren't getting kicked out of their apartment. And the couple is celebrating their engagement when they break down on the side of the road, coming home from the beach, and encounter T-Bird and his crew. Additionally, the crow in the movie... ...is a real bird, and Skull Cowboy was going to be a real person. In the comic, they are shown as manifestations of Eric's psyche. So, the crow speaks to Eric, but no one else ever sees the crow. Additionally, Skull Cowboy doesn't really exist. What that character is, in James O'Barr's mind, is death. There's some chronological differences as well between the two stories... ...as the order of deaths has slightly changed. In the film, it's more of a hierarchy, almost like boss levels in a video game. Whereas in the comic, it seems like mindless revenge... Also, as far as the gang goes, Top Dollar is not the boss in the comic, but rather a local area boss with his own little gang that reports to T-Bird. So there's an inversion in those two characters. Additionally, Skank is not one of the gang members present when Eric and Shelly are killed. Skank is just a random bad guy who's with Tom Tom, one of T-Bird's crew that is present at the time of the murders, when Eric exacts his revenge on Tom Tom. Another interesting point is that Fun Boy encounters Eric three times before meeting his ends. And I find that interesting because I've read quotes from James O'Barr where he states that there is the most of him in both Eric and Fun Boy. Gabriel the cat also doesn't belong to Eric and Shelley. Rather, he is found by Eric after Tintin kills his owner. Also, the young girl that Eric befriends is named Sherry in the book instead of Sarah. I'm assuming that change is probably just because of the fact that the names Shelly and Sherry are so close. Ironically, that commonality is used as a mechanism in the books. But, Hollywood. Oh, and... I think I already mentioned this, but the Albrecht character in the comic is actually a rookie cop. There is another detective, a police captain named Hook, so there's constantly jokes about Captain Hook throughout the comic. And he is the one who stays with, in the comic, Eric, who hangs in there in intensive care for 30 hours before saying a few words and then passing away. So there are quite a few differences, but it's also nice to note how much dialogue and how much of this content has found its way into the film. And I have a feeling we're going to talk about that a little bit more as we move along. So let's move along. Alright, so this would usually be the point in the show, if there was other human people here with me, that we'd do a round of favorite scenes. But since it's just me, let's talk about all of my favorite scenes. Okay, so I'm going to try and go more or less chronologically through some of my favorite scenes. Uh, And I'd like to start with that first opening shot that kind of flies over the city and you see the buildings and flames and this sort of thing. And I love how that shot was achieved using miniatures that they could make multiple passes on. And then they were projecting flames onto the buildings to get this really, really cool... Uh, aerial shot now additionally sarah's voiceover here this wasn't in early drafts of the script it was actually added when they decided to eliminate the skull cowboy character a role intended to be portrayed by michael berryman who you might know from say for example the hills have eyes or actually he was in uh, double dragon with mark de the same year uh, as The Crow came out, a terrible movie, but a little tie with Mark Dacascos, because he later played Eric on The Crow Stairway to Heaven, so there you go, a little bit of trivia there. And you might also know him as one of the bikers in Weird Signs. That character was cut because a couple of the scenes that were intended in the script, and some of which we're going to talk about a little bit later, were never filmed with him before Brandon's passing. Additionally, they didn't like the look of the aesthetic that they had created for Skull Cowboy. So the role that Skull Cowboy more or less played in the film was as this guide for Eric. And he kind of had a role in the film of just reiterating to the audience every 15 minutes or so, hey, this is what's happening. And that's really not needed in this film. So in any case, Skull Cowboy was cut, Sarah's voiceovers were added, and the rest is film history. Moving along. I'd also like to talk about this scene where Eric returns home for the first time and uh, picks up Gabriel, has the first flashback sequence, starts to remember everything that's happened. Now, this is another scene that in the script included a version with Skull Cowboy. Skull Cowboy was the mechanism used in the scene to essentially enrage Eric to the point where he would run at Skull Cowboy and Skull Cowboy would move. Eric would jump at him go through the window and grab on, cutting his hands and then landing back in the apartment, realizing that he, of course, is healed and that he is presumably invincible as long as he stays on his mission. Now, that entire mechanism was actually cut from the film as there was another scene, or rather an extension of the scene where Eric exacts his revenge on Funboy, where Funboy actually emerges from the bathroom and fights with Eric. And because Eric has helped Darla, um, Eric has extracted the morphine from her veins and has been helpful, has not stayed on his mission. Funboy is able to injure Eric. So later on in the film, when you see Eric all taped up, his hands and his chest and so forth, that's from that scene, or that's the result of that scene because Eric did get hurt in that fight with Funboy. Of course, all of that mechanism was cut, so whatever. I really like the scene though where Eric returns to his apartment because that is one of the scenes that was shot after Brandon Lee's passing, achieved mostly with stand-ins and also with a little bit of trickery from the people at DreamQuest, who you may know that name in association with Avatar. Now, as a child of the nineties, who grew up in the heyday of the MTV generation, I can tell you that this scene works so well because it plays as a music video, almost, with Eric punching the mirror and his reflection, of course, digitally placed into the scene, spread over the pieces of broken glass in the mirror as he applies his makeup. The scene is also interesting because as Eric walks away and the crow lands on his shoulder, he approaches the window and you have that flash of lightning and they have placed brandon lee's face just for that split second of the lightning flash onto the stand-in in the scene it's a really ambitious scene for 1993 and it still stands up and rewatches today everything that they've done here i just really have to say bravo to everyone involved in getting the scene to the quality that it is considering what had happened also just a quick shout out to lawrence mason who put a lot of time into his knife work in the showdown sequence that he has just after this with Eric. So Tintin fighting Eric in the alley. And I've always loved that fight sequence right from Eric falling off the roof and the maniacal laughter in the rain and all of the imagery is great. And of course you get Ernie Hudson's great line at the end when they discover Tintin's body where he says, uh, I'd call it blood detective, but I suppose you'd write it up as graffiti. But in any case, let's move along to Gideon's pawn shop. I love this scene because of how loyal it is to the comics, with the exception of the Edgar Allan Poe stuff, which admittedly I've always loved, but I know that Obar has said many a times as much as he liked Poe, he never once referenced him in the comic, but a lot of the dialogue from the comic is intact here, and the scene plays out in a very similar fashion. Of course, the biggest difference being that Gideon escapes alive in the film, and he doesn't get so lucky in the comic... Now, one bit of dialogue added in the script is this line, which is one of my favorite in the entire film. I also just want to mention how cool I think it is The way that they achieved that shotgun full of rings gunshot. They basically just blasted smoke at the camera and then dropped big rings in front of it. But it looks amazing. It looks fantastic. And I don't know. Just want to geek out for a second. And then of course, who can forget the first official meeting between Eric and Albrecht? Police! Don't move. I said don't move. I thought the police always said freeze. Well, I am the police. I say don't move, Snow White, you move, you're dead. And I say I'm dead and I move. Another scene that I'd like to talk about is the scene at Funboy's apartment. Just a few quick notes because I don't want to ruin the whole fucking movie for you, and I'm only a halfway through the notes that I've made here. I wanted to mention that both the joke that Eric tells to Funboy, as well as the line, Mother is the name for God in the lips and hearts of all children, do both appear in ...in the comics and are recycled here, which I like very much. Obviously that line, Mother is the name for God, yada yada yada... ...is from Vanity Fair by William Makepeace Thackeray. I also love the whole interaction going on downstairs in this scene... ...between Grange and Gideon at the bar. Okay, so I've just got a note here that says, Rooftop Guitar Scenes. And I just wanted to tell you a story about when I was first learning to solo on guitar... I would bought a book of scales, and as a guitar player, very often the first bit of soloing that you ever do is using the minor pentatonic scale, which is basically a five-note version of a minor scale. So a quick music lesson here, a major scale like Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, La, Ti is a heptatonic scale, or seven-note scale, or seven-pitch scale. Its relative minor would start on the La, a note to follow, So. So the minor pentatonic scale is basically la, do, re, mi, so, with fa and ti removed. Now, if you're confused, imagine me at age 12 noodling away cluelessly over a 12-bar blues lick like fucking Ralph Macchio in Crossroads. That is, until I heard Eric start shrouping and then smash his guitar to pieces... And the moment I realized, oh wait, there was an E minor pentatonic scale there, was the moment that I realized that this, and this, not so different. So I just quickly want to mention a few of the smaller scale interactions between Eric and other characters in the film obviously this scene where Ernie Hudson is in his underwear with his hat still on in his apartment it's a great scene the latter part of the scene featuring the line famously ad-libbed by Brandon Lee believe me nothing is trivial and also Sarah's visit to Eric and Shelley's apartment obviously another reshoot from after Brandon's passing but I love the shadow on the wall it's effective it's simple it's money well spent Here's another fun fact. Did you know that James O'Barr has a cameo in this film as a looter stealing a TV out of Gideon's pawn shop after it blows up? Screenplay writer David J. Show also has a cameo in the film as one of the first gang leaders to get killed by Eric at Top Dollar's Devil's Night gang boss powwow that we'll talk about in a moment. I read somewhere this week that he's also a stand-in for T-Bird in one scene when you just see his feet. Oh, you know what? That scene also recycles a line from the comic where Eric stops for a moment and plainly states, You're all going to die tonight. During his second post resurrection run in with Funboy in the comics, this time with a gang of goons at the gin mill, and he says that line in the comic right after he finishes reciting Seven Blackbirds in a Tree or one for sorrow, or whatever you call the nursery rhyme, wherever you're from. I know it's more traditionally associated with magpies and the superstition that surrounds them, but it's kind of been reappropriated here in North America over the years. So many people here know it as blackbirds, sometimes even crows, rather than magpies. I realize I'm on a bit of a tangent now, and things are probably going to get worse here, because I bring up Eric reciting the nursery rhyme, because of this scene in the Crow City of Angels, where Ash, I guess, stalks Thomas Jane Five in this trolls. weirdo old-timey six sex club, six gone. Uh, seven crows, a secret never to be told. And City of Angels, to me, even though it's totally a guilty pleasure film, it's like somebody made David S. Goyer run down a fucking checklist of shit to work into the script, emotional voiceovers to bookend the film, check. Religious symbolism, check. Poetry, folklore, or nursery rhymes. Oh, bonus points for borrowing from the source material. Check. Nutso woman with some unexplained precognitive abilities. Check. Rock bands a-rockin'. Check. Which in two is fucking Deftones. Please tell me that you gave them so much money for that. I'm sure they cleaned up on the soundtrack anyway, but... I can keep going here. You get it, though. The movie should have been called The Crow Paint by Numbers. Well, saving grace of the film is our buddy Magic the Raven that we talked about earlier is back reprising his role as a crow in some of the scenes. I don't know. Let's move along and talk about the big boss fight at Top Dollars Club, or as I call it, the showdown at the Ideal Cement Factory, which is the actual name of that abandoned factory in Castle Hane, North Carolina that the club is shot in. And this isn't the only flick that uses it as a shooting location either. It's that wicked home for delinquent children who want to become evil ninjas in the first Ninja Turtles movie, uh, where Sam Rockwell is handing out cigarettes to minors, and Casey Jones finds a new respect for golf when he goes full Arnold Palmer on Tatsu's head. I'm told it was also used in Super Mario Brothers, but I'm going to have to find an all-new level of intoxicated if I'm going to even dream of sitting through whatever that was again. Much respect to Dennis Hopper and Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo, though, you have many of films here at Mermel in high rotation. That just isn't one of them. But yes, I love this scene. It's all the best kinds of badass. Brandon Lee's delivery is spot on. The first face-to-face showdown between Michael Wincott's top dollar and Eric I Feel Like a Little Worm on a Big Fucking Hook is a great moment. And stunt coordinator Jeff Imada delivers one sentence of dialogue like he's going for the fucking Best Supporting Oscar. I love it. Apparently the scene took about a week to shoot but it's so worth it. My life with the Thrill Kill Cult just ripping it up downstairs while Eric is just ripping all the baddies apart upstairs. And when the music cuts and it's just the strobe light and gunfire, you have Eric slicing and dicing with a katana and firing guns with his arms crossed for no reason other than it looks super cool. And it does. It looks great. All the tension that builds on the dialogue-driven front end of the scene is released with a marvelous action sequence which is definitely the highest kill count of the film amassing the majority of the 30-ish deaths in the movie. And then the cops show up and Eric does his very best Broadway-style exit stage left. And I can't even explain to you how much I loved this scene as a kid. Okay, one last scene that we have to mention, of course, is the big final showdown. Uh, Worth noting, when Eric first shows up at the cemetery and finds Sarah sleeping next to Shelley's plot. um, Obviously, he's got the tape on his hands and his body that we were talking about before. When Sarah is kidnapped by Top Dollar, or rather, I think it's Grange that grabs her outside of the church, if you're interested, the only scene shot with Michael Berryman as Skull Cowboy can be found on the internet with a little bit of clever searching – So if you're interested to see what Michael Berryman as Skull Cowboy would have looked like in the film, maybe take a trip over to YouTube and do some searching. Sadly from the start, The Crow was a film set plagued by misfortune. On the first day of shooting, a carpenter was hospitalized after suffering severe burns when the crane he was operating hit live power lines and the same night an equipment truck would catch on fire. A disgruntled sculptor who had been released from the project would later drive through the plaster shop and another worker on set would be involved in an accident resulting in a screwdriver going through his hand. Weather was also no friend to the shoot as Hurricane Emily would destroy several sets and cold weather in conjunction with the rain machines being used for the film would make lights, camera, blowtorch, action, standards on set. And then, as the end of the film drew nearer, some 60-odd days into shooting... The Unthinkable happened Approximately 1.30 p.m. this afternoon, actor Brandon Lee was pronounced dead at New Hanover Regional Medical Center. 27-year-old Brandon Lee was killed during a movie set accident today. He was filming a scene for the movie The Crow. I've thought long and hard about how to address the details of Brandon Lee's passing in this episode. Over the years, I've read, seen, and heard so many tellings of the events leading up to this terrible tragedy. And after a lot of consideration, I've decided that I'd much rather talk about his work in this film. And so, what I'll do is, if you're not familiar with what transpired, I'll put a whole bunch of links to articles and videos and so on in the show notes for this episode. But for today, I'll simply say, rest in peace, Brandon. Now, with the production shut down in lieu of Brandon's passing... Paramount Pictures would back out of the project, opting to write off the film with the insurance company. But Miramax would come on board and put approximately $8 million of additional funding in to finish the film. The company Entertainment Media Investment Corporation was created to essentially buy the film from the insurance company, and Price and his crew would go to work on script rewrites and an additional four weeks of shooting to ensure that Brandon Lee's phenomenal work... ...on this film would be seen. DreamQuest images would then begin work on digitally inserting Brandon into the remaining required scenes. We've already talked about some of the more notable ones, but let's talk about a few more. The scene where Eric first returns to his apartment was achieved using a mix of POV shots, filming stand-ins... ...and then digitally placing Brandon into the scene, utilizing unused footage of him walking through the alleyways... And we talked earlier about how this plays out later in the scene as Eric punches the mirror and accidentally releases a Cure music video. Now, the flashback sequences of the home invasion were obviously also reshot after Brandon's passing, with the details of the scene changed out in respect of Brandon Lee. Now, they had to again digitally put Lee's face onto a stand-in as Eric falls from his apartment window in the scene. Now, Brandon's mother, Linda Lee Cadwell, widow of the great Bruce Lee, did file a negligence suit against 14 defendants involved in the incident that claimed Brandon's life, eventually settling out of court for an estimated $3 million, but I have read that the Lee family did also give their blessing to the filmmakers to complete Brandon's final picture. It's also interesting to note that James O'Barr would opt to give the majority of his earnings from the film to charity, buying only a car for his mother and a surround sound system for himself, before giving the rest away. In 2009, during a video interview at a comic convention, O'Barr would state that his earnings from the film felt like blood money. He would then explain that he didn't want it known that he had given his film profits away, saying, "...I didn't want to profit at his expense." and I kept that secret for as long as I could. It's not charity if you get credit for it. It's also worth noting that the soundtrack of this film was an absolute game-changer. It would go on to sell 3.8 million copies on Atlantic Interscope... On the strength of notable entries like Burn by The Cure, written specifically for the film, a stellar cover of Joy Division's Dead Souls, performed by Nine Inch Nails, that admittedly, at 10 years old, sent me searching the record store for Joy Division albums. Stone Temple Pilots also re-recorded a song that they had written while they were still performing as Mighty Joe Young for the soundtrack called Only Dying, but out of respect to Brandon Lee's passing, instead contributed Big Empty, which would later appear on their second album, Purple. Great record, by the way. Rage Against the Machine contributed a re-recorded version of Darkness of Greed, which on the soundtrack is just called Darkness. The list goes on, from Violent Femmes, Helmet, The Jesus and Mary Chain, Rollins Band covering Suicide, Pantera covering Poison Idea. This was a ridiculously good film soundtrack in 94, and it was already at number 15 on the Billboard Pop Charts when the film opened in theaters. And yes, I said Pop Charts. The soundtrack is prominent throughout the film, and rightfully so, as obviously the comic was heavily musically influenced. Joy Division lyrics and song titles can be found throughout the books, and the caliber edition of the first book features a dedication in memory of Ian Curtis. But it doesn't end there either. From The Cure to Susie and the Banshees, oh, and of course Iggy and the Stooges obviously lending a lot to the aesthetic, with Funboy basically being an homage to Iggy Pop, and Eric's body movements as well, while Eric's face, Obar modeled from Peter Murphy of Bauhaus. Music's influence on Obar's work is incredibly apparent. In the graphic novel version that I have, the final page of book two, Fear, is Eric sitting cross-legged on the floor, staring right into your eyes, and the lyrics of The Cure's The Hanging Garden from 1982's Pornography are written out on the left side of the page. I've always seen that as the final shot of a film or more so a TV show and I remember realizing that my mom had a ton of the music that was on the pages of these comics lying around the house and as a kid basically reappropriating those records and tapes from her collection into my own right through my teenage years. Okay, so one other thing that I wanted to mention was that I've heard both producer Jeff Most and James Obar talk about the soundtrack and their involvement in it, choosing the bands, getting them to come on board, and so forth. Jeff Most on the DVD commentary talked about how hard it was to get a label to back the project until Trent Reznor came on board, which I'm sure it was. But there was one thing that struck me very oddly— ...as he was telling the story. It bothered me so much that I spent like three hours trying to fact-check a piece of information that I didn't even need for this podcast. So I want to make it clear that I'm putting this into the show because I'm a vindictive, spiteful, petty individual. So anyway, the comment (laughs) that bothered me was that he said that he introduced James O'Barr to Trent Reznor. And to be clear... I cannot recall if that was on the commentary or in a written interview that I had read. And at this point, I've done 4,000 Google searches all to the effect of Trent Reznor, James O'Barr, James O'Bar, Spin Magazine, Nine Inch Nails, How to Overcome Obsessive Behavior, these sorts of things. But... I know that it was said because it sent me down this dark rabbit hole. So long story short, I remembered seeing an interview with James O'Barr that he mentioned knowing Trent Reznor before Nine Inch Nails. And I also remembered that James O'Barr at one point worked at Spin Magazine and that he said in interviews that he made a regular thing out of giving his comic out to bands because traveling 10 hours in a bus is really fucking boring. Point is... I was positive that Trent Reznor and James O'Barr had crossed paths before. And the best that I could come up with that wasn't either O'Barr himself or Jeff Most was this clip from an MTV interview Reznor did on the eve of the movie's release. I was a fan of the comic book before I heard there was a filming made. And it appeared to be being made um, the right way. Um, I was somewhat intrigued to be involved in in some ha! actually that proves nothing nothing at all but i tried in addition to the soundtrack the score composed by graham Revell, who's also lent scoring work to films such as the craft and from Dust till dawn and also comic book films like sin city spawn daredevil and tank girl and he would also come back to score the crow city of angels He's hit all the right emotional beats here. It's a gritty, tense, driven sound that's almost elemental at times, and Ravel only breaks from that intensity when the film calls for the score to dive headfirst into string and synth-driven, beautifully reflective sonic melancholia. And in those moments of the score, like everything in this film, it is very much an extension of Eric. It's no longer the film score, it's Eric's score. And I think it contributes very heavily to your emotional connection with Eric in this film. The opening piece, entitled Birth of the Legend, certainly ups the ante of the film's opening sequence as you watch from a bird's eye view a city being overtaken by flames. Oh, and also, if you're looking for the rooftop guitar licks that I was talking about before, they're part of the track entitled Inferno. Before we end the episode, I wanted to quickly talk about the many attempts to remake, reboot, and create new iterations of The Crow on screen. Obviously, we've already hinted at the other three films produced in the same series, and hinted them is all I plan to do today. Seek them out if you feel so inclined. Additionally, there was a television series, The Crow Stairway to Heaven, which starred Mark Dacascos as Eric, uh, that ran one season... There was also at one point talks about an animated version being developed by Funimation, the studio that notably produced Afro Samurai with Samuel Jackson, which fell apart for financial reasons, but I think that could have been very cool. And it seems as though we've been endlessly hearing about the potential for a new Crow film from... The failed Crow 2037 that was supposed to be directed by Rob Zombie back in the late 90s, all the way through to the most recent uh, Corin Hardy-Jason Momoa team-up that has recently changed from one studio to another. Now, as a fan of both the source material and the Alex Perez-Brandon Lee film, my inclination is that I think the 94 film will 100% stand on its own if another film was to come out. And I believe that if the source material is followed more closely, you could have the ability to make a very different and equally loyal piece. That being said, I wouldn't do a new Crow project as a feature film. Instead, I would look to streaming services like Netflix or Amazon Prime or even to premium channels like HBO, Stars, or Showtime. And I would opt for a three to five part R-rated miniseries in the style of the books. And what I mean by that is I would go back to the idea of The Crow being a manifestation of Eric's thoughts, as well as stay away from the idea of Skull Cowboy. I really don't want to see Skull Cowboy in anything I like the idea of that character being a physical manifestation of death. I love the show opening up the first episode with basically inertia happening. And then you have the, you know, whatever stupid opening sequence you have to have in the show to introduce your star and blah, 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 directed by and we gave money the project. And then when it comes back to the show, you have that beautiful opening sequence with Eric riding on the train. And looking out the window at this beautiful white horse running alongside him. And of course, the horse runs into a barbed wire fence and is wrapped up. And Eric is devastated. And the crow, this voice in Eric's head, tells him, I told you that you shouldn't have looked. And that's when Death appears. Dressed as a train conductor, asks for Eric's ticket. And Eric refuses to give it, beginning his journey. It would work very well as a miniseries. And... I think that's what fans of the comic want, and I think that those are the fans who are looking for another Crow redo, because they know that there was more to the film that couldn't be achieved because of Brandon Lee's passing, and also because of filmmaking circa 1993. They're not looking to redo the 1994 Crow film. They're looking for their comic book that they love on film, and I can appreciate that. I really can. All right. So that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. Uh, the panel will be back for the remaining three episodes of 2016 that we have. Uh, we hope you'll come back. Keep an eye on the Twitter for those release dates because they are going to be on Wednesdays, but they're not going to be the regularly scheduled every single week stuff because obviously we have more than three weeks left in the year. And then we'll resume our weekly schedule next year. Um, Just wanted to give everyone a little bit of a break this December. Additionally, let us know if you like this format of episode. I know we've talked to a lot of people about it before, back when we did the Punk Rock miniseries, and also when I did that episode on drive-in theaters. And we're thinking about doing maybe 10 or 12 episodes next year in this format, with one of the panelists coming on to do a film that they are really close with so let us know if you like it and uh maybe we'll give it a try next year you can reach us at show at movies you can find us on twitter at mermal podcast at m r m l podcast wow i had trouble saying that and you can also find us at facebook.com slash movies for my life you could find us at our website movies where anywhere that uh, podcasts can be heard so iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio TuneIn Radio, Google Play Music everywhere if we're not where you listen to podcasts let us know and we will get there for you you can also find me on Twitter at NotBrandonFleet and I think that's about it so even though it's just me thanks for hanging out with us Thank you.